Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue, the director of uh, Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Salinas. And I am looking forward to starting another year of Voices of the Valley podcast with my good friend, Candace Wilson. Candace, great to see you. Nice to see you too. And It'll we, be our best year yet, Dennis. Well, I'm counting on that. And uh, we have a great guest to start the year off, uh, Brandy DeCarly, who's the uh, co-founder of Farm from a Box. And uh, I'm really anxious to visit with her and have her share a story. But as we were kind of talking just before we went on the air, you know, there's a method to my madness in terms of asking Brandy. Not only will she be a great guest, no pressure, Brandy, don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> Brandy is somebody who is really making a contribution to the entire world. So when we think about New Year's resolutions and how we can all do a little good, I think Brandy will be a bit of an inspiration. So with that, Randy, welcome. Uh, great to uh, have you for this episode. And we actually get to see you. Our listeners don't, but we do. Great to see you. <laughs> so good to see you too. And what an entrance to make on this yeah, one. Yeah, that, so that was one of my better so intros. Much. Yeah, that was a good one. I worked on that one. So. <laughs> Can I build on that? <laughs> yeah, Just so our great. listeners know, you have the best smile. This is a contagious smile that you have. Truly. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm certainly in good company. And here we are entering into the new year. So we've got a lot to smile about. There's good things going on. There you go. Good. Well, speaking of good things, uh, I think your career and what you're doing is one of them. So one of the things we like to do is just have our guests talk about their background and their journey to where you are and what you're doing today. And you're doing more than one thing, but we'll start with focusing on how did Farm From a Box come to pass and tell us about that journey. Oh boy, like all good journeys, it was a bit of an unpredictable adventure. So my business partner, Scott Thompson, and I thought of this concept years ago at this point. I had just returned back to the States from being in South Africa. Scott independently was doing a lot of work with the UN, particularly around youth. And when we first met each other, we clicked immediately and thought, we can do good things together. And that first formation was coming out as we started a nonprofit together that was building youth empowerment centers using modified shipping containers. And we were really kind of focused on bringing in education, health around sporting facilities, particularly in Kasumu, Kenya at the time. And so when we were going through this project, we realized, well, wait a minute, education, health, sport, all things that are really foundational, but the community was still missing steady, locally grown access to good nutrient dense food production. So we sort of boldly and naively thought, well, why don't we just take this same deliverable modified shipping container and just outfit it with all the tools and components to be able to grow a good steady crop right there. So that was the, really the genesis of Farm From a Box. And it's certainly grown and evolved and advanced greatly since those first immediate visions of what it is that we can do. But that was really the start of it. Well, and you really had uh, the classic entrepreneurial journey of you know, a vision, try something. And if that doesn't work, then what do we do next? And frankly, the amount of patience and stick to itiveness that you and Scott displayed was, was extraordinary. I still can remember when you talked about the kind of the first prototype and uh, up, uh, I want to, I want to say in the Sonora area, right? I mean, Sonoma. 
Yes, you're absolutely right, Sonoma. And that is sort of quintessential to the entrepreneurial journey is to choose to just dive into the deep end and then figure out how you're going to iterate <laughs> along the way. But it is that grit and that continual belief in what our vision is and knowing that along the way, the more that we learn, it may change. It may look a little bit different, but we're still sort of guiding to what that core vision is, which is how can we use clean technology to really increase and strengthen localized food access and local and regional food production at this point. So that has never wavered, even though the product has certainly advanced and gone through multiple iterations for us to get there. Well, and I think one of the things that uh, our listeners should know is, I mean, you've always had kind of an international bent and focus around this project. So that issue of localized food production, you know, not a nice to have, a need to have, you know, so can you expand on that a little bit? Because I'm going to guess that drove your vision. I mean, you know, as we were chatting, you know, your offices in the Embarcadero in San Francisco, you know, I'm pretty sure they can find food there, uh, though, obviously, lots of <laughs> lots of thoughts on how they'd like to access it, particularly in the Bay Area. But that in terms of meeting really a substantial need, as I recall, that really drove a lot of your thinking. It did. You're absolutely right by that. And we both were really coming from having this more philanthropic lens to when we first started. And it was very, very grounded in food security and nutritional security. And how can we make sure that we're filling those sort of infrastructural gaps by making sure that communities at this point, especially with climate change, have the technological systems and that infrastructural support to be able to really continue to grow a stable, reliable outdoor crop production. And so this is where we were really finding, okay, if there's no power, we need to make sure that we're connecting them with power, independent of whether there's a grid out in these rural remote locations. How do we make sure that we're de-risking water by making sure that we're stabilizing it with drip irrigation technology? So there's, it's all these infrastructural support systems that was really lacking in the field of a lot of these underdeveloped areas. But here's the thing, what we found is that when we widen that aperture from looking at these areas that are really struggling with food insecurity, that's happening right here in our own backyard in the US as well and all over the world especially now that we're seeing breaks in the supply chains, again, climate challenges, and things are not growing in the same way that they used to. So we really kind of need to have these infrastructural support systems. So with our approach being, how do we address that through a modular sort of decentralized drop-in infrastructural support system that works for addressing food crises, but that also works for sort of re-anchoring localized food production directly into the fabric of our communities as well, which is really, really important. So it's sub-Saharan Africa, certainly, but all the way to what it is that we're doing here stateside. Well, one of the comments that you made was the iterations and how you dive right in and you basically figured out as you go. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the farm technologies and how at the beginning, what was the concept at that time? And then what other technologies have come into the marketplace and helped you be more efficient with today's farm? Yeah, great question. That certainly helps paint the picture a little bit in terms of where it is in this evolution. When we first started, you know, we really saw a lot of opportunity in just using a shipping container, a just ruggedized shipping container that's ubiquitous all over to be able to bring in all of the farm components. So that was kind of the core structure of the system. On top of that, we layered in these sort of basic hardware components. How do we connect in power? We make sure that we power the entire system by renewable energy. 
which at the time really looked like having this solar array with this battery pack as a part of the system. So all farm power needs were powered off of renewable. Then we connected in a solar powered pump to make sure that, again, this was not a labor intensive pumping system, but that we could use smart technology to really be able to make it less labor intensive. Then we had drip irrigation going out into the field. Again, this sort of drop-in system was and is designed to support regenerative outdoor crop production so that we can also support any type of crop and crop combinations. So that initially was our first prototype, power, water, and also Wi-Fi connectivity inside. From then, we really started layering on more things. And sometimes it happened in a really unique way. Sometimes these would be informed by the farmers that we were actually working with, where they're like, actually, we really want this component or this sort of pop-out greenhouse shade house isn't really working. So let's drop that. And instead we can use a different type of greenhouse. I was fortunate enough to speak at the World's Fair in Milan years ago. And at the time, uh, the World Food Program was led by Ertherin Cousins, just this absolute dynamic powerhouse woman. And I remember I was listening to her keynote speech, just enthralled by what she was saying in terms of how food needs to be empowered on a localized level and what we could do differently. And there was one moment in time in the speaker's lounge that her entourage sort of separated from her. And I just went straight in and said, hi, this is what we're doing. This is what we have. What are we missing from your perspective? And she thought about it for a moment. She says, cold storage. Do you have cold storage? Because that's really, really important to be able to mitigate in-field food losses. That's one of our big challenges. I'm like, no, we don't, but we will. <laughs> and we immediately went back and just dug in and redesigned our entire system to turn the inside of this shipping container to be a walk-in solar-powered cold storage room that could be delivered directly there in-field. And so that's actually turned out to be one of our largest value-add components to our farms to make sure that you know we're not losing those post-harvest losses directly in field. That's been really important. So to continue, Candice, we've done things like that with our hardware system. And then once we really sort of got that down to a point of refinement, where there's one other thing I should add, which is just by the nature of working in outdoor agriculture, as opposed to a controlled environment system, there's a lot of variables that we're working with, different soil types, different climate types, different crop types. And so through this process of iteration, we've had to learn how to adapt our system in a really dynamic way so that we're not custom building each one of our products each time to the location. But instead, we've developed it in a way where almost like Lego pieces, you can plug in and plug out different kits to make it quickly respondable to whatever that on the ground situation is. If your local water access is pumping off of municipal line, great, we have a kit for that. If we are out in the middle of you know the border of the Congo in Tanzania and we're going to be pumping off of a river, great, we have a river kit for that. So we've gotten to be very smart and it's been a, one of our biggest challenges to do this, but have it be so modular where we can plug in and plug out different kits within sort of a standardized container structure. So that's been really exciting about our development. And then now, of course, once we do that, then we start layering on IoT and a whole sensor and software system around that too, to make sure that we're taking all of that information that's happening on field as a part of the product and helping really optimize it, optimizing the energy and water usage, making sure that we're tracking the temperature of the cold storage for food safety issues, and even layering on other sort of value add systems like digital financial banking, if our farm cooperatives need that access and other systems. And it's all sort of software based. So it's been interesting. It started with this sort of rudimentary hardware utility, and it's really expanded after that now. 
Well, I recall some of our early conversations and who was going to manufacture or make things. So just listening to everything you said, it sounds like some assembly required. Are you making or you do work with a core group of vendors and then you have to bring it together? And it sounds like there's got to be a training component. And then the other question I have is, so when you show up, let's go to the Outer Banks of the Congo or a refugee situation. What's the uh, capacity of the farm from a box? Is it 100 people? Is it 500 people? Is that the right way to look at things? Yeah, it's certainly one way of looking at things. But let me answer your first question first with regards to the fabrication, because I think this one has been a really interesting one for us to figure out in that using this modular structure, that gives us the opportunity to pre-install a lot of this technology and pre-test it as well so that by the time it actually gets delivered into the field, you've got a turnkey solution that's already been basically configured to that particular site. That has really helped us de-risk a lot of challenges that happen in the field. And trust me, we have gone down that more difficult path in order to learn this lesson. But we now know the importance of pre-installing and pre-testing everything before it even gets on the truck to be able to ship out into the field. We test it all. We make sure that all, all of the battery connections are good. All of the power systems are rigged, tied, everything before it gets out into the field. So with that, in the same way that one of our big value beliefs and why we really founded this company and, and what our approach is, has really been grounded in localization. And so we've infused that value set even into our actual fabrication of our units so that when we're working in other locations, we aren't just fabricating in the United States and shipping over to these other countries, but we actually take the time to set up localized fabrication in the countries and regions that we work in. This helps us not only make sure that we can have multiple sites building units all at a time, but for maintenance. So instead of costly shipping, which at this point we know is very unpredictable uh, in terms of shipping things globally, it certainly turned out to be a big strength of ours during COVID as well, is to have this regionalized fabrication. That also ends up building stronger supply chains in the countries that we're working in, contribute to job development, which is really important. But also we have to make sure that we're not fabricating these systems with components that are so specialized that they aren't there locally. So that really lends itself well to on the ground localized maintenance. At the second part of your question, around the teaching and the training, sort of the capacity building around that. Certainly we work with partners on the fabrication side, which is really important. And when it comes to operating the system, we train all of the farmers during that deployment phase, how to run and maintain the entire system, how to troubleshoot different components. And again, all of that is also backed by our remote monitoring system so that when human error things happen from our office in San Francisco, we can make sure that we're also assisting these farmers in troubleshooting things that go wrong. And this happens whether we're talking California farms that are more urban farms or some of these really remote locations. We've had so many different situations where we've been able to really lean on this data system to be able to help provide the support on the ground of, oh, wait, wait a minute, like here's, a, here's an example. We have a farm that we have in West Sacramento, and we did this in partnership with the International Rescue Committee. And with them, they're really working with resettled refugees coming in from all over, but this particular farm is Nepalese, Afghani farmers uh, and Bhutanese farmers primarily that are all coming together on what was a vacant plot of land and is now a thriving community-based farm that's supporting the Yolo County Food Bank, supporting different restaurants, different grocery stores, and certainly the needs of the farmers. That's the context. But we all know 
that Sacramento gets really hot during the summer. And so in this, you know, 110 degree heat, the farmers were harvesting all of their crops and shuffling them into the cold storage. And unbeknownst to us, they had sort of wedged the door of the cold storage open. And so after they left, someone had forgotten to close that door all the way. So from San Francisco, we get an alert that the battery power is starting to drop in that particular farm. And we're like, what's going on? So we reach out to them, connect. Turns out, oh, the door was left open to the cold storage. So the air conditioning was just pumping out cold air into this hot, hot summer heat. And so sometimes it's these things that are just those sort of unpredictable human error components that make sure that we're continually making sure that we're adjusting the design of the systems accordingly. But again, this data system provides the additional sort of layer of support for our farmers too, which in cases like that, it, it's really ranged farm to farm. This is so amazing. I have a couple of questions and they're kind of related or they may be. You talk about the US farms and international farms. My first question is just in regards to, you know, what percentage of the farms or your efforts are focused on, you know, international markets versus the U.S. And then secondly, I would be curious, like, what is the profile of farmers in some of your different locations? That's such a good question, Candice, because it's also ranged a little bit. So at this point, we have more units in the U.S., but that's going to change come this year because our approach has also evolved with the evolving sort of food scape that we're in and certainly as um, challenges have opened up that we know that we could actually help address. So previously, a lot of our farms have been individual farms in individual areas, sort of one-offs, if you will, where we've been there to support different educational areas and students have worked off of our farms. Or again, like the case of the IRC in Sacramento, it's an infrastructure to support a productive commercial farm that's within a community. And we have several of those type of farms. What we have found is really highlighted by these supply chain breaks um, that happened in COVID, we realized we've got a decentralized drop-in modular solution that can help shorten global supply chains and connect those dots in areas that were either cut off in the challenge of COVID and supply chain breakage, or were never quite frankly included in the market to begin with. The other third component of that is a lot of these areas are at high risk for climate challenges. And we've got that infrastructural support system that can help support good, stable production in those areas and ultimately help curb climate migration while increasing good, stable livelihoods in the agricultural sector in these areas. So what we're starting to do now, which is really interesting and I'm really excited about this, is deploy our units as an entire series, like a constellation of systems all within one region. And by doing that, we connect with different farm cooperatives and farmer groups and basically activate a whole new agricultural supply chain. That enables us to work with a different buyer segment. So whether we're working with refugee populations and still helping them uplift what that growing is, now suddenly we can work with much larger scale agri-food businesses because we're growing at the volume that they need to be able to basically help procure from these local regions. It's pretty exciting. And because we're this clean tech, this is where I'm gonna start, like my energy is gonna start going up now. And because we're this clean tech system, it becomes this win-win 
the communities and the farmer groups that we've always been really driven to get this infrastructure in the hands of so that we're supporting them suddenly also becomes a benefit to these big agri-food companies because we can track what's going on on the farm. We can help track what's going on with their water usage and their water management. We can track their emissions reductions with scope one and scope three. We're connecting them with these sort of cold storage pods that are in the field that enable them to be able to procure different high quality value add products from these areas that they wouldn't have been able to procure from because there was no cold chain access there. So I'm really excited about this new approach. And that goes back to our very first question of the evolution yeah. of what we're doing now too. This also applies in the US where how can we, this is something new in 2023 as well, is how can we use this drop-in system even within partnerships with healthcare networks so that if we're dropping in multiples within these healthcare networks, suddenly their patients and their staff can start procuring, growing, and being involved in really good nutrient-dense food products directly there that not only help serve these hospitals, but help educate the patients on what good, reliable crops could be grown and consumed for higher nutrition levels and lower diabetes. So we're shifting a little bit more into this B2B and working on more of this regionalized multiple level too, which is, is really exciting because we can really get to the impact that we've always envisioned. Uh, so I'm fired up about that part. Well, it sounds like you've got to uh, get ready to grow. So that is often an entrepreneurial <laughs> challenge as well. What are you and Scott thinking in, in terms of how do you go to that next level? Because I, I remember some of our early conversations and they were a little more international at the time, you know, things like refugee camps where you can just drop in a food supply and those sorts of things. But B2B, international, domestic, managing growth sounds like it's going to be one of your uh, big challenges. Big challenges and big opportunities. And I think one of our big strengths in approaching that is through partnerships. We can achieve so much more by having these strategic partnerships that we work in alignment with. For example, whether these are technological partnerships that help us elevate what our product is and what it is that we can provide as a solution, such as Netafim, which we are huge fans of. They've been with us from the very onset of the development of Farm from a Box and they continue to grow with us. They basically also come in not only providing cutting edge technology, but helping us make sure that, again, we've got that sort of multi-pronged solution that can help us rapidly adapt to different locations and different soil types and crop types. Whereas if we tried to do that on our own, we would still be in the development phase. So we do that with Grunfoss as well. That really helps us sort of, again, expand our range of what it is that we can provide. So we're also doing the same thing in terms of our growth strategy. And that's through, we're now signing distribution agreements with partners that can help us expand that scale and going into different regions where if we have good, strong strategic partnerships that are also familiar in those local markets, that gives us a lot more of an ability to be able to make sure that we come up with a successful solution versus us trying to do it on our own, which is just nonsense. So we're extremely collaborative in our approach. We can do so, so, so much more together. And we like to really sort of drop those silos as much as possible because there's so much more to be gained by working strategically with partnerships. And, you know, you kind of took the words out of my mouth there with collaboration and so much to be gained too. There's so much more credibility too, when as you're starting out, when you have a company like Netafim and other well-established brands and, you know, that are already in the marketplace, it brings a lot of credibility to you too, that they have confidence in the technology that, you, you know, they're willing to be part of your journey also. So that's all great messages. 
How about like the prioritization of crops and how regionally focused are those crops or the, the diversification, I guess, of the portfolio that you're able to grow? This is again where it starts to get really exciting. I say starts to, but the reality <laughs> is present tense. It already is exciting. So because our system is really clean technology designed to support outdoor regenerative crop production, we kind of pride ourselves on the fact that it's crop agnostic. And so every single one of our farms to date has been a diversified crop. And sometimes, I mean, this ranges, gosh, we have a farm that we're doing in Virginia, working with returning veterans, and it's all vocational training for these returning veterans. And they're growing 45 different varieties of crops, all intercropped and seasonal crops. And so they're layering on basically this year-round growth, which is phenomenal. Other areas, we can focus a little bit more on the commercial aspect of a primary cash crop but then intercrop and maybe share a certain percentage of the overall land that we're supporting with other nutrient-dense food crops. And we try, quite frankly, to always make sure that there is some diversification of the growth. We also think it's smart to sort of hedge your bets in terms of what the, that growth is so that we can extend what that production level could look like. Another interesting way of, of looking at this is you know, there's a project that, God, I hope it goes through. We're still in sort of this discussion area around it. So I'll leave out some of the details and just hope that this one goes through. But we would be surrounding this refugee settlement with our drop-in farm from a box systems. Our system would be growing um, passion fruit and passion fruit pulp for purchase with these large, a big national agri-food business. Passion fruit pulp requires cold storage. So through our system, we're opening up this whole new potential commercial chain that wouldn't have been able to exist there before. But that's the primary commercial cash crop. Intercropped with that are all of these nutrient-dense whole food crops that the communities and the farmers still need access to. So that's kind of the perfect example of we want to make sure that every single one of our farms is very commercially focused and market-based and can really earn good incomes and provide for the nutritional needs of the farmers and the community that's directly around it as well. So it's interesting. There's another one that we have in process. It's actually on an island nation, and it's a mixed use where it's an agroforestry project that also has whole food crops grown within the forest and the saplings as well. So I love how we do these projects where it's such an interesting range where you can still have this sort of quote-unquote standardized infrastructural support system that can support such a wide range of different projects from agroforestry to passion fruit pulp to everything else that's in between too. It opens up a lot of opportunities. Well, and as if you weren't busy enough with all of that, your vision <laughs> and passion and as you categorized it, don't want to call it a success and rest on your laurels. So still a big work in progress, but uh, you've caught the attention of a few folks and all of this has really created some additional opportunities for you. I always admire somebody who can do a TED talk because I couldn't figure out how you, how you talk extemporaneously like that without, without <laughs> notes. But, uh, you know, things like the Explorers 50 and, uh, and then you involved with an accelerator in, in Jordan. I mean, the world's caught on to you and what, you, what you're doing. What's that been like for you? I, I mean, I'm sure it enhances additional, uh, you know, your experience with Farm From a Box, but talk about all the opportunities this has created for you. <laughs> Yeah, my gosh, Dennis, this has been so much fun because you never in a million years would predict some of these things coming into your world, which has just been really exciting. And sometimes, sometimes you just have to say yes and then figure it out a little bit later. And that was certainly the case with giving the TED Talk. I think I was a little bit more of a last minute fill-in, to be honest <laughs> with you. And so 
I got a phone call from a colleague saying, what are you doing next week? And I'm like, why? <laughs> so, Want to give a TED talk? Yes is the answer. And I'll figure out everything <laughs> along the way. So I think a lot of those is just, again, diving in and saying yes, and still making sure that you kind of call that self-critical talk that makes you really nervous from taking on big opportunities and just dive in full-hearted instead. So that was certainly the case with the TED Talk, which has been really exciting. And speaking at COP, which has also been exciting. But the Explorers Club, for me, just has always felt like the big impossible. There's no way I would ever be able to join. I'm not climbing Everest. I'm not flying out to space yet. You know, These are all things that I'm still holding on to the potential to. But things change. So when they opened up this program called the EC50, which get this, EC50, 50 people that are changing the world that the world needs to know about. If you don't feel the excitement and weight of that one, <laughs> you're like, it's such an honor to be a part of it, but it's incredible. And our work has been so informed by these connections that we've made being active within the Explorers Club. Because interestingly enough, we're connecting with geologists that are talking to us about different things that are going on climactically, you know, with rocks and areas that they're working with. We're speaking with people that specialize in bioregional seeds and what's really needed and how we can help amplify their work and vice versa. We've connected with astronauts and literally like space technologists that are saying, look, most of the findings that we're finding in space are informing what we can do for our planetary biodiversity and food security through all of these different ways that I just didn't necessarily see happening before. So it's really been exciting and I'm still going to continue to live in this space of openness to the things that I would never in my million million dreams expect to come into my world, but I'm really being grateful that they are. Well, I can tell Candace is going to jump in, so I'm going to beat her. I don't want to lose your experience working with the Jordanian accelerator because as we were discussing before we got on the air, you know, ag tech's a global game. And so certainly you've had the opportunity to uh, look all over the planet and see what's going on, so to speak. But then you get a very specific experience of other folks trying to uh, follow the path you've gone down in terms of vision and get something started. What was that like? And obviously that part of the world is one that when you think about all the challenges, climate, water, et cetera, you know, I'm going to guess you learned a thing or two. You always learn a thing or two, especially when you go into an area where, again, I'm not Jordanian. So the interesting thing for me to have the opportunity to collaborate with a Jordanian agricultural accelerator, there was a lot of learnings. And it gave me the opportunity to be able to work with these different startups with these really innovative ideas and not only see how those ideas and concepts were really applicable specifically to sort of the Jordanian context, but to also really see the parallels. You know, a lot of the things that is um, happening in Jordan agriculturally, both the advances and the challenges are things that are not that foreign to California, to Arizona, to a, a lot of areas in Sub-Saharan Africa. There's still this foundational grounding that we need to be paying attention to what's going on with better water management at a very fundamental level everywhere. We really need to make sure that we are focusing on how we stabilize and increase more of a sort of surety of supply wherever it is that we're working. And that's definitely something that the Jordanians are doing some amazing work with. But interestingly enough, very similarly to what we're seeing in agritech developments here and in Europe, how do we connect communities with the food that they're growing more directly? How do we make sure that we're connecting those dots 
on individual access and community level access certainly even all the way to more larger scale commercial access. So a lot of the startups and founders that I was working with had developed these solutions that were so smart of things that you could do within your household to make sure that you've got good crops. How do we connect different technologies within restaurants to make sure that again, as a customer going into a restaurant, you actually see that this, the food is grown directly there within the restaurant and understand that connection more to the food that you're consuming as opposed to having it be something else grown somewhere else and the way all the way down to in field really good smart sensors that were helping manage the health of a crop out in these big growing areas so it really ranged but there's still those common denominators and i would also see with some of these founders that potentially repeated mistakes that i had learned the hard way where i'm like wait a minute wait a minute i used to also think the same thing and I used to focus on this, and here's what I found instead. So let me at least impart some of my learnings from my own failures in the formation of Farm From A Box and the growth of Farm From A Box, and be able to really extend those to other farmers too. But Jordan's doing some incredible work in agritech development, and there's a lot to be learned from them, quite frankly, that we can really apply here also. Noted. I wrote a few things down, so particularly efficient uh, management of water. So Candace, as we, as we draw to a close, and we obviously could keep going for a while, but uh, any last questions or thoughts? I'll have one, but I want to uh, let you jump in here. I am just curious. If you think about looking ahead for the next five years, tell us what kind of successes you want to be celebrating when you get to that five-year mark. What are you hoping? What's next? This is such a good question for the beginning of the year. Such a good question and such a big question. So, you know, I think especially, especially as we look forward to the next five years globally, nationally, within our own communities and our own lives, I really want to be celebrating the fact that food production and good sustainable production that is done in balance with our planetary resources has just become much more commonplace and much more fully integrated and sort of expected. I think that's going to be a really beautiful thing to celebrate on, on sort of the macro level is there's been such incredible advances in technology that I think can just globally help us curb a lot of challenges that we're seeing with food insecurity and malnutrition that can really enhance better stability in the world. And when there's food insecurity, that means there's political insecurity and there's civil insecurity and there's unrest. And that's the last thing that we want to see more of in the world. So I think food is such a foundational thing for us to focus on. And by nature of food, that means agricultural security at the same time. So I think using and really harnessing the power that technology can have to increase that agricultural security globally is definitely one of my wishes. For us as a company, Farm From A Box, I want to make sure that we're continuing to develop in ways where we can be smarter, we can be more accessible, we can be more sustainable, but that we become a part of this solution to this sort of global fabric of improved access. Like that would just be a part of my dream come true is how do we make sure that we're really connecting people with understanding the beauty and the richness of eating your own tomatoes that you grow and harvesting your own sorghum and that making sure that you're providing for your family and that you're growing and being able to stay in your own community and still thriving prosperously. I mean, these are all big things, but that's why we exist. And this is what we're seeing on a farm by farm basis. So I think we're just looking forward to stepping into that growth where we continue to learn and expand and can really make sure that we're hitting that impact on people and places as much as we possibly can. And 
five years, it's going to be a wild ride. I can't wait to see what that is. <laughs> but I think it's going to be really good. There's some phenomenal innovations happening. So I think we're going into a really good place, even though it may feel really rough right now. I think there's a groundswell movement globally to really focus on security and connectedness within your communities, within your country, and country by country, that's how big changes happen. And I think foundationally, agriculture and food is very deeply interwoven into that. So the last question I would have kind of picking up on your big picture and, you know, it may feel rough. I think a lot of folks do think there's some headwinds out there. And I think the other, I know you've gotten involved in, uh, certainly you're familiar with the social impact investment world. And my sense is, regardless of how challenged things are, that's going to move forward because in the midst of challenges, there are opportunities. And so just, you know, with all of your uh, activities throughout the world, just kind of a general observation about uh, social impact investing and how important that's going to be and helping you realize that five-year vision. Ooh, Dennis, you nailed it on that one. I think honestly, the biggest headwind for us in a lot of ways, but also for expanding the scaling of some of these really innovative ag tech solutions that can make huge monumental impacts, not only financially, but socially and environmentally, has been figuring out what the right financial models to scale and growth are going to be. And not necessarily within that purely classic Silicon Valley, how do we extend this? But how do we make sure that we really open up the access where refugee settlements become potent income earners for countries that are opening up hosting opportunities to them and that we need to have the right models in order to make that possible. The technology, quite frankly, already exists now to be able to make those things possible. But that gap and that sort of the breaks that get put on is what is going to be that right financial mechanism to achieve that. And that is where I think impact investing not only for making sure that there's a full pipeline, a full pipeline of a robust future of really innovative, smart systems and companies that are approaching this, but how do we make sure that not only are those companies seeded, but really scale on a massive, massive level and that big projects happen so that we can make some monumental changes in this next 10 years, especially with climate change. So we're seeing that happen. We're seeing more female founders get support, more impact investing. We're seeing the metrics change of what companies are needing to produce buy in order to be valued at a certain level to get the funding that they need to scale. But projects also, how do these large, large scale projects that can impact the lives of thousands, millions, how do those get funded? And classically, in my view, my experience, there's been this big gap in what the World Bank is focusing on funding, what the UN is focusing on funding, what country levels are focusing on funding, and that's starting to change. Blended finance, I think, is a huge opportunity for us to be able to really focus on. And the more we're able to step into, again, that sort of collaborative lens of it isn't just this way, this way, this way, with all of these boundaries in between, we can engage public dollars and philanthropic dollars in business solutions to make sure that there's good, solid returns as well. And I think that's an exciting area when it comes to impact investing also is how do we make sure that we're we're seeding these startups, but making sure that they really get to the scale where quite frankly, the realized potential is going to be. That's a big answer to a question. (laughs) Candice, I'm not surprised she got invited to join the Explorers 50, are you? No, I'm, this has been (laughs) such a fantastic conversation. And, you know, some of these, you know, interviews, you feel like you could carry on for hours, but I think we got a lot into one hour and it has been such a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. Randy, terrific to see you. Thank you so much. Oh no, what a, what a terrific. So good to uh, see you too. 
Well, good to be seen. And uh, I can't think of a more thought-provoking way to uh, start the new year. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure I'm going to speak for everyone who's listening. I love the passion, love the vision, and uh, I think we're all going to benefit from that. And so glad to hear Farm from a Box is doing well. And uh, as I told you earlier, we had our good friends from NetFM on a couple of weeks earlier. So we'll be sure to mention to them that you are helping us start the new year. Brandy, wonderful to see you and happy new year and hope to see you in person soon. Oh, I look forward to that. And it's so good to be able to have these revisits with you as well. So in person, and thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Candace, what do you think? Should we come back and do it again next week? We shall indeed. All right. Sounds good. We'll see you then. And Brandy, happy new year and uh, happy new year to uh, all of our listeners. We will be back soon with another episode of Voices of the Valley. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources Program and the courses offered in Ag Technology, Food Safety, and Plant Science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.